um, some people go through. And like you said, it is a disease. And we have a tendency um, to, to look at like mental health in one category and substance abuse in another category, but it's really all the same because we're all talking about certain type of diseases that people are predisposed to. Some people are predisposed to, uh, to stress and anxiety. So they just can't handle it. And the first thing they want to do is they want to off themselves. Why? Because they don't have that those coping mechanisms. So... Mm. It's the Empowerment Perspective Podcast, hosted by Demiso Josie and Mr. Kareem Spence. Stay empowered. Stay empowered. All right, welcome to yet another episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. I go by the name of Dr. Demiso A. Josie, alongside... Spence is here. And... Uh, how we holding up? We still good? Quarantine ain't get to our heads yet? Man, yeah, it is. I had to put a record shirt on today, man. I got tired of wearing a sweatshirt. I had to put a real shirt on today, man. Yeah, I feel like a grown man and not like a little kid wearing sweatpants every day. I got you. I got the same clothes on. <laughs> that, you know, put the hoodie on and the sweatpants and stuff. Jamie, how you holding up? You all right? I actually do have on sweatpants today because I've given up. Yeah. <laughs> you going you going backwards. I'm going backwards. I don't care anymore. I get it. I get it. So our last podcast we had, um, we talked about person forever. We had the couple on out in California that's starting to do their podcast, Jason and Nikki out there, giving some relationship tips and quarantine and the conversation mm-hmm. kind of went left. So um, a lot of you probably will not see that particular episode. It's mainly for adults. So um, anybody that's young, you probably not going to get a chance to see that particular podcast or hear it, but we will release it. Um, but big shout out to them. Kareem, how do you think that particular podcast went? It, it seemed like you was taking stuff personal a little bit, though. Well, I, I, I was, and I, I needed some relationship tips because you know I, I struggle in that area of my life. Um, they 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 were fun, but I'm still not too sure on whether or not I'm supposed to give up my phone password. I'm still stuck on that. I'm also stuck on you know um, the little sip of orange juice if I can put it back in, but I have to write on the calendar. You know that we need to have more orange juice. So that that uh that that's that was good for me. I think yeah, it was a, you a definitely, definitely right coming from a different faith. You know what I mean? Being a bachelor and all. So um, I get it. Jamie, how do how do uh like that podcast? I think um they're an absolute power couple. I think that anyone single should listen to what they're saying if they want to be in a power situation one day. Um, because you could see the the strength between them. I got you. I got you. Kareem, you disagreeing. We're going to say that for another podcast. I know you two can go at it all day long. So we'll say that for another time. So, yeah, that's because um, you, that's, petty, that's why. You petty? <laughs> well, truthful and petty kind of doing the same thing sometimes. Uh, I got you. So this season four, we've been trying to uh, bring you, uh, obviously, some helpful information that has nothing to do with the coronavirus. Um, obviously, we want to bring you inspirational stories. We want to bring you information that's going to help you on the back end of this thing as well. Um, and uh, through our, a mutual friend of ours, I was able to connect with um, this, this brother originally from Trenton, New Jersey. Um, he's out now in North Jersey. He's doing some big things in the basketball world. And he has a personal story about overcoming obstacles and everything as well. Um, and I think that our audience, um, we did a 
show previously um, about this topic, um, but to bring on some more examples on how to overcome obstacles is a huge thing um, here with the Empowerment Perspective Group. So I'd like to welcome Mike to the show. How you doing, brother? How you guys doing out there? We're doing good. We're doing good. So the way we contact or connected, um, mutual friend of ours, um, he was like, yo, I got this friend um, that I'm at school with that um, has a story um, about overcoming obstacles, uh, specifically recovery. I don't know, you know, we thought it would be good for you to be on our podcast and to share your story. Um, and also uh, explain that you are heavy into basketball. So we're going to dig into that, too. So there's going to be a, a combination of a, a two different things that we're going to have going on today. So I guess um, give us a little bit about your story. Um, you don't have to go too deep and share whatever you want to share. Um, and then mm -hmm. real importantly, no, I'm comfortable with no. I'm comfortable with telling my story. I do it all the time. It's not. It's something. It's something I do. I go out and talk to kids about it. Talk to adults about it. Um, I turned it into. Um, I felt like God chose me to to do this, and that's why I went through what I went through. You know what I'm saying? So um, um, I'm gonna take it back to. Going through college. College was the first time I ever took a drink, and. I had never did alcohol or drugs up to that point. I had never like dealt with any of that stuff. When I first, when I went to St. Peter, um, I was that was my first time away from home. St. Peter's College in Jersey City. Um, I, I I struggled with uh, the cultural differences. Um, coming from an inner city, all black high school, and then going up there and being around the uh, different races, I struggled with the co cultural differences. I struggled with. Academically, it was my first time away from home, and first time I struggled. First time I really had—I didn't know how to study or nothing like that. So I struggled academically. I struggled culturally. So I—I I came home, and I can remember my mom like, I, "What happened was I took a test and I got 29 out of 100." And I went to the professor and was like, "Is this real?" And she was like, "Yeah." So I was hurt because I had never felt anything in my life. So I went home. And I told my mom I didn't want to go back. And my mom was like, you got to go back. I mean, she said, you don't got to go back, but tomorrow you're going to get a job. And I knew then, if you know the, if you know my mom, if I ain't go back to school, I'd still be hearing about that to this day. You know what I'm saying? So I jump right and go up to Jersey City. I get off in, at Journal Square, walk down the street, and I see a liquor store. Go in the liquor store. I saw a 2020 bad dog. Banana strawberry, mm. never forget it. <laughs> Took it out, bought it, snuck it into my dorm. And that was the first night I ever to drink. And the alcohol had took me somewhere that I had never been before. Um, I didn't have to think about what I was going through. I didn't have to think about none of that stuff. So throughout my freshman year, I used that as a, as a crutch. Anytime I felt that I didn't want to deal with something, mm -hmm. I was I, um, I, uh, drunk alcohol. Now at that point, I didn't realize that I had put some of my body that that would that would eventually become a disease. So then I go, I transferred to King. Now that's a party school, so I'm partying every day. Um, I mean partying, especially on the weekends, Thursday to Sunday, we partying. And I didn't know then that the alcohol was progressing, progressing, progressing. So you know, ran into some tough times at King. And once again, the help was there for me to go get help at the therapy and all that kind of stuff. But I chose. They just go get my friend alcohol. You know what I'm saying? So not knowing that, that this thing is progressing. So once I graduate college, I moved to uh, Marsville, Pennsylvania, like most most people doing Trenton. 
and I, and I met my first wife. We got together, partying just turned really off the hook. Um, I had two incomes then. So I was able to pop, pop bottles in the club, whatever the rappers was drinking, I was able to drink. I'm thinking this is a part of life, not knowing that everything is progressing. I had my first, um, first encounter with death. I had moved down to Jersey Shore. We had moved down there. One of my friends had got us a job down there. He was a principal at a middle school. So we had came back to Trenton. I was living in Eatontown. We had came back to Trenton to go to the club. We go to the club in Trenton. On the way back home, he had a he had a, a Land Rover. Back then, the Land Rover was real tall. Land Rover was, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. we drinking and smoking in the car. We both drunk. Neither one of us seat belts on. He he ride down 195. And he almost ran into the back of this uh this this car. So in order for him not to hit the car, he turned the steering wheel. And once he did that, the car flipped. The truck flipped about six times. All I did was tuck, close my eyes, and just pray. When I came to, he wasn't in the truck when I opened my eyes. The so, truck was laying on the side. And the only way I was able to get out, because we had the sun. Cause it was still hot it was around in the, in the fall we had the sunroof open so the truck laying on the side i was able to step out through the sunroof and then i looked i was screaming his name and then he was about a half a mile down the road in the grass and he was like yo i'm right here shut up so i looked down the uh the street and i saw him and then i was like yo and that was god sending me a message but i didn't take it me when you're in the midst of that lifestyle i, I took it as I'm about to live every day till it's my last day because I almost died. So now the party increases more and more and more. And then September 14th, 2009, that's when my life changed forever. Me and my wife was separated and um, we worked together at the at the school we taught at, but we were still close. Um, me and her was supposed to do a project that day. She ain't come to work. She ain't, I called her on the phone on the way to work, she ain't answer trying to get her to get ready for the project. She ain't answered. So I'm figuring she in the shower or something. I get to work. They like, yo, have you talked to Janelle? I said, no. I was like, she ain't answering when I called this morning. So they was like, all right, well, she ain't calling. I said, all right, I'm gonna go to my homeroom. Call me at while I'm at home and let me know what's going on. So they was like, all right, homeroom over. They call me like, yo, come down to the office. I go down to the office. They like, yo, she ain't calling. Um, we worried about her. Do you mind going over there to check on her? And um, and I said, yeah, no problem. But I said, I'm riding down there. If she call or come, because she lived like 20 minutes away from the school. I said, call me and I'll turn around and come back. So I get to her house. I see her car in the front. I feel a little relief. Then I go up to the door, knock on the door, no answer. Yell out her name, no answer. I checked the knob. The knob was, so I went in, went to her door went to her a bed yelling out her name she don't answer then i walk in the bedroom and i find it dead on the floor in the in her bedroom so now i, I jump into straight panic mode call 911 come in the 911 come in they tell me i gotta leave out the uh, apartment so they was like prepare we're gonna talk to you we got you gonna have to answer our questions for the rest of the day now me i'm in shock i don't know what's going on what happened anything so they take me down to the uh to the, uh, first they took me to Neptune police station. Then um, I, let, I sat there for a little bit. Then they took me to uh, uh, Monmouth County Prosecutor Office. So I go sit in there, I, they come in, 
They talked to me for two hours. So I'm telling them everything that I know. We know which is really nothing, just about our relationship and stuff. So I'm thinking I'm helping the situation. Everything is good. Two days later, newspaper article drops. It says um, she was found. They didn't say who found her. But in the last paragraph, it said, because we were separated, then about to have a divorce. In the last paragraph, it said she was estranged from her husband. They worked, they worked at the same job, and their divorce was supposed to be fine on October 6th. Now, this is September 14th. And that's when I said, oh, my God, I'm the I'm the number one suspect of my wife's murder. So at that point, my life just went into a froze. I didn't know what, what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't, didn't know anything. So I just was like stuck. And that was the first time and the only time in my life that I thought about suicide. Um, Everything was dark. Wasn't really nowhere to turn. It wasn't nothing I could do. So, but what, but what got me through was I said that I know I didn't do nothing. I wanted to see it through. I knew my family already had went through mad pain and I didn't want my family and friends to go through anything else. And right. lastly, but of course, the number one reason was I believe in God and I thought if I killed myself, I would go to hell. So, mm. my life has to transform into this thing. I can't go to work. They told me. I can't come back to work. So what do I do? I'm therapy and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, but the therapist can't really help me because there's no conclusion to this situation. It's an open situation. So I turned to my friend. Now, I had to do this. Every, I was doing, Then it became normal because you got to understand this. It took six years for them to, to, to say somebody else did this. So I had to wake up every day. Wondering if today they're gonna knock on my door and tell me that my life is over for something I had nothing to do with. So just to live in that fear every day and that torture, and then you feeling guilty because because y'all wasn't together and the and the, it was just too much. So I turned to my friend, and then I had a uh I had a guy that called me. I knew him. He was an attorney, and he was like, "Don't talk to nobody." His name was Ron Venturi. He was like, "Don't say nothing else." nobody i'm a i'm gonna represent you because they're gonna try to pin you against they're gonna try to pin this on you and so i'm gonna represent you don't worry about it so ron represented me and then but then three years later around 2015 two years later i get a phone call from ron and i'm like what's up ron he was like I got bad news i'm like what's wrong i'm thinking i'm about to go to jail he was like no i got brain cancer and mm. i said what you mean you got brain cancer so ron to me he has brain cancer six months later ron dies Two days later, they was knocking on my door like, we need to talk to you. And I'm like, I, I can't talk to y'all. Like, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, told me not to talk to y'all. I'm not talking to y'all. So this is going on every day of my life. So during this time, the only way that I can maintain, because honestly, and this is no excuse, I really thought that if I wasn't, if I was sober, that I would think too much and I would drive myself crazy. And then I'd be somebody that's walking down the street talking to themselves and losing their mind. So I, I didn't want to be in that space. So I, I just used to be drinking and drinking and drinking. Then it became normal and normal, but I still don't realize that I have a problem. So then 2000, uh, after Ron dies, 2015, this, this, I get a call from this detective and he and he gets on the case, Scott Sammons, and he tells me, yo, um, Mr. Mountain, I know you ain't had nothing to do with this, but I need to talk to you again because um, they did their investigation wrong, so I need you to come in and give me a statement again. 
Now, Ron had already told me that if you try to talk to them, they're going to try to act like they're your friend, don't believe them, this and that. So it took me a year to sit down and talk. He was persistent, calling me, calling me, calling me, calling me, telling me to, to, uh, to uh, talk to him. So I finally sit down and talk to him, and he said, all right, this is what happened. He said, your wife was living next door to a drug dealer. Um, the drug dealer had $18,000 in the in the freezer. The drug dealer told his girlfriend, his girlfriend was at a party running her mouth. Somebody at the party heard her. This guy at the party heard her, told some stick-up boys. The stick-up boys went to the wrong house. That's how your wife got killed. So I was like, damn. So I was torn because I was, I was still hurt that she died, especially dying for that. Then I was relieved that they knew that it wasn't me. So then I said, you know what? You might have been sipping too much. Um, um, you know what? I'm going to go to rehab and get some help. So I get on a plane. I fly down to Florida. I get to the rehab. Walk, uh, do my five days of detox, go into the rehab, and I made a fatal mistake when I went in there. I, I, I did not die with the people that was there. I thought I was better than them. And when I sat in the meetings and I and I heard the people talk, guys were uh, guys that guys didn't have the money that I had. Guys uh, were drinking way more than I was drinking. So I, I told my son when I when I when I got in there that I'm not an alcoholic because I don't drink this much. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't look like that. I'm not an alcoholic. So I put it in my head that I wasn't there for alcoholism. I was there for the therapy of what happened to my wife. So I didn't go to no meetings. I never opened the book. I never did none of that stuff. I goofed off. I laughed and I played around. I didn't take it serious at all. So the so the last day before I left, it was this counselor there, and he said. Um, he was tapping on a chair and I said, yo, Chris, like, why you keep doing that? And he said, cause this is where you're going to be at. Cause you ain't do shit when you came here and you want to come back and you want to be drinking twice as much as you was when you left, when, when you leave here. And I laughed at him and said, crazy. I ain't never coming back here because I really had it in my mind that all I needed was to clean up and I could be a social drinker. Since I never opened that book, I didn't know that I had a disease already. So. I checked out. I was so arrogant with it. I had a cousin that lived in Fort Lauderdale where I was at rehab at. I was supposed to get out on Saturday morning. I convinced the people to let me out Friday night because I knew my cousin was going to live there. My cousin pulls up. He like, yo, you ready? I'm like, bet. He like, what you want to do? I said, listen, man, I ain't been around I ain't, I ain't been around females in all of these days. I'm going to go to the club. So I left rehab and went to a club. So that's when my mindset was that I thought that I could be social because I never opened the book. So then I get back home. I'm still socially drinking. Everything is, I'm thinking everything is cool. I already know what's going on with the cases. Done. Everything. Prosecutors called me back again. Said, Mr. Mellon. I said, what's up? I thought everything was good. Said, we got to go to trial. And you got to testify because you're the one that found it. So now I'm, I'm scared all over again because... I don't want to be the one to mess up and get up on the stand and say something wrong or do something wrong. And these three guys that get off that murder my wife. So now the anxiety lifts back up again. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm totally scared again. So guess what I do? I go back to my friend, Mr. Alcohol. Start drinking again, drinking again. Now we get up close to the trial. 
And I cooled out because I knew I had to handle, this was some serious stuff I had to handle. So I cut it down, got up on the stand, did what I had to do. And this is how I know God intervened with this. On my birthday, the verdict came down. All three of the dudes guilty on all charges. On my birthday, they got found guilty. Now, I had it in my plan to celebrate for the next month. I was hitting all the islands. I was because I had went through 10 years of this. But I knew God had other plans. Two weeks later, my uh my current my uh wife that my second wife, she had a uh uh a birthday party set up for me down in Atlantic City. I go down to Atlantic City, I'm in the room, and um I'm drinking and drinking, I'm drinking, and I overdid it that day. And I was sitting next to it was Tori. I'm sitting next to him and he turned and was talking to me, and I looked at him, and I couldn't recognize him. And the first time in my life, that never happened to me before. Like, I never sat next to somebody and didn't, didn't know who they was. And I was scared. So then I went in the room and, and laid down to go to sleep, and I promised myself that day that I wasn't going to drink again. And then when I woke up, because I was in fear that that would always happen from then on. But then when I woke up, I realized I couldn't stop. Now I was going to the liquor store around the clock. I'm going to I'm going to, to different liquor stores in Trenton. I'm just buying bottles and doing this and doing this. And I couldn't stop. I really and it's no worse feeling than when you really, 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 really want to stop and you can't. So then it got to the point to where I went in the basement and then I said, I got on my knees and I prayed to God and I said, Yo, God, either help me or take me. I can't. There's nothing else I could do, and I and I haven't. I never paid that hard before in my whole life. And I asked God to either help me or take me. So then, Wilson Will started turning. I knew I had to go back to rehab. I flew all the way out to California. To, uh, um, it was the Malibu. It was one of them places like Malibu. When I dared to look at the rehab, the rehab was whack. So then I'm on the phone with my dad and them. They like, yo, I'm not going to this rehab. And they like, well, you just don't want to go this now. I said, guess what? Send me back to Florida and I'll go. I, 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 I'll go back to Florida. But Florida used to be one of them lockdown rehabs. Hmm. And I knew I still had my basketball business. I didn't think I could handle the lockdown rehab again. And this is when God intervened again. We called down Florida. I'm on the phone with them. But we negotiating days. They like... I'm like 30 days, they like 50 days. I'm like, well, 40 days, they like 45 days. And so we negotiating the days and then I'm like, listen, I can't handle that lockdown stuff no more. I got a business to run. And they like, nah, Mr. Melton, it's not like that no more. You can have your laptop, you can have all of the stuff, everything. So I'm like, bet. So I head down to Florida, I go to the detox and I walked in the rehab and I opened the damn book. And I read the story. It was about this guy that um he was he was he was 30 years old and he said that um any anybody in AA definitely know what I'm talking about. He said that um he was 30 years old, he said, I'm not gonna drink again until I retire. Cause I don't want drinking the message. Mm -hmm. And he waited 25 years without touching a drink. That he was 55 years old, he was sitting in his den. With his slippers on, and he and he and he picked up a drink, and they said when he took that drink, 
Within four months, he was hospitalized, and within three years, he died. And I said, oh my God, what the hell have I got myself into? And that brought some fear onto me that I had never felt before. Like, never felt that, like, if I don't do something, I'm gonna die. So then I just sprung into action and started going to meetings, sitting up in the front of clinical. On the, like, I spent $650 on Uber when I was in Florida for that time because I was going to three, four meetings a day because I was scared for my life now because I had, once I opened that book, I realized that I got a disease and if I don't, if I don't stop disease, I'm gonna die. So I did that every day. I was going to meetings after meetings after meetings after meetings. And then one day, I sat there and I, and I said to myself, I asked God, God, why would you allow me first for my wife to get murdered, then for me to be the number one suspect, and then go through all of this stuff knowing I didn't do it, and then um, allow me to become an alcoholic in the process. And then I got my answer on a the last day of, uh on the uh, last day of uh rehab they have a uh you got to talk to the people before you leave the, uh the, uh like the whole group the counselors the whole rehab you got to talk to them like like a speech type thing and then when i told my story the whole place was like mesmerized and then i knew that none of this stuff was about me god allowed me to go through all of this stuff so I could tell my story and my testimony and help save people's lives. And then I thought back to my basketball company and, and all the people I knew and all the kids I knew. And all the, he had created that platform for me before I even went through all of this. So that's when I knew what my calling was now. But when I came home, I watched that Chris Heron video about when he was going around talking to the, uh, talking to the different schools about drug abuse. And I said, this is what I'm supposed to do. I started calling up AAU teams, high schools, and, and all of that stuff, going around telling my story to the kids. Because I knew that that's what I was really put here for. And that's how I came all, all the way around. But it, and I always say, who would have ever thought that, that one of the greatest feelings in the world to me would be telling a kid that I was an alcoholic. But it's nothing that I can explain once, once when you're doing it, and you know you helping people, there's no better feeling than that. Got you, got you. I want to go back to the beginning um, of your story when you were um, saying that basically that the high school that you went to didn't prepare you for college. Uh, we have a mm -hmm. lot of educators that are on, uh, that are, that's our audience. And you talked about not knowing how to study and not knowing how to, to basically do that life and, and, and um, fit in up there. Do you think that if, you had the proper education and the, and the proper training um, that that may have been the turning point for you early on. Um, or was that, in other words, was that an opportunity that was missed? Um, I think it was the the high school portion. The the of course, where I was from, the curriculum wasn't as it was in other places. So I, I could still get A's and, and all that kind of stuff. I just didn't really have to study like it took me to study once I went to that level, you know what I'm saying? But then once I, once I got to the point to, um, to understand my disease, it was hereditary in my family already. Mm. So as soon as I started, it was gonna go. Mm. 
You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So, as soon as I started, it was gonna go. My 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 mom later told me that my grandfather had died like 45 from the same from from alcoholism. So once I started, I was gonna go. Gotcha. And Kareem talked about basically the cycle and breaking the cycle uh, of addiction. Yeah. It is hereditary and things of that nature. Um, and I mean, I can obviously use my own situation as a as an example, but how do we how do we break that 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 cycle on something that is so you know I guess well, part well, of your career? Uh, yeah, let me, well, let me say this. I think that we, we're all uh, predisposed uh, to certain type of conditions, um, and many in the um, African American community is mainly it's going to be either a drug or it's going to be alcohol. Um, and then when you talk about the time period um, of the 60s, what year, if you don't mind me asking, what year were you born? You were born in the 70s or 80s? 75. 75. Okay, so now you're talking about everything that his parents had to go through. You talk about in the 60s. Mm -hmm. all, all of that. So when, when you talk about the amount of stress and anxiety and worry that his parents had to go through while he was actually in the womb so it's not easy and even growing up like in trenton it's not easy it's a lot mm -hmm. of additional pressure that's put on students that's coming out of trenton and you would think that since it's the the state capital that everything in trenton will be good but it's the total opposite like when we were up there uh like two years ago they said that they had a shootout at some type of 24-hour arts festival mm -hmm. without question yeah i'm like that's unheard of like who who, who uh, in there who in there, i would say in their right mind would want to go shoot up an arts festival when people have the opportunity to gather and be able to be creative. But Trenton is just different. And yeah. we had like a, a gang problem and like Trenton has always been that area that's really been tough because it's so diverse. Like Trenton is a very diverse city. Um, but going back to like what he had to go through, so not only what did he become psychologically dependent on, he also became physically dependent on. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a double whammy. Because mm -hmm. we, we can address the, the psychological part, but that physical part of him going through detox, that is like like no other. Because you, you're actually mm -hmm. like taking a kid, now to use as a baby. You're trying to take a baby off the bottle. And you see mm -hmm. how long the baby always wants to go back. Whenever you try to give a baby a cup, a baby's like, no, I need that bottle. And that's, that's similar mm -hmm. to what um, some people go through. And like you said, it is a disease. And mm -hmm. we have a tendency um, to, to look at like mental health in one category and substance abuse in another category, but it's really all the same because we're all talking about certain type of diseases that people are predisposed to. Some people are predisposed to uh, to stress and anxiety. So they right. just can't handle it. And the first thing they want to do is they want to off themselves. Why? Because they don't have that those coping mechanisms. So hmm. while he was going through it, and I'm sure that he had people in his family that loved and, and trusted him, at that particular time, he just could not hear anything that they were saying to him because mm -hmm. he, he was he was stuck. And he said, the only way I know how to escape this pain was to go to the liquor store and get what I need. So for mm -hmm. him, when things got rough, instead of him trying to say that, you know what, I'm going to hurt somebody, he decided that, you know what, I'm just going to take a drink because it helps me to escape. It helps me to get away from that particular stressor that's causing me to feel this way. And mm -hmm. when he lost his wife, he didn't want to feel anything. And we've all been there before, including myself, where you just don't want to feel that because it hurts. Mm -hmm. It hurts so much. And when you have a sober mind, that's something that you're going to be 
compulsively thinking about over and over and over again. So for him, he said, you know what? I need to take my mind off it. And just like many other people, we find something else. For him, it was alcohol. Some other people, it may be work. Some other people, it may be the gym. But we all have different types of coping mechanisms to be able to have that sense of relief and escape. And that's what he needed. Gotcha. For me, I was yeah. that being able to break the cycle is, is really being able to have like really healthy communication. We talk about it all the time, but you need to have that one or two people in your life that you can actually have a conversation with and be real with. Be like, listen, this is what I'm going through. And from that, it will give the body and the mind a sense of relief. Mm, gotcha. Jamie, I want to bring you in the conversation a little bit. Do you think we're missing the boat from as far as the education standpoint on preparing students in their transition to, to college? Um, and I mean, we're just using this as a, a discussion in terms of what could possibly happen when that those needs aren't met. Do you think that we're missing the boat as educators early on? I mean, you know, you're dealing with middle school kids. Mm-hmm. I think that school is more than just coming in and doing academics all day long. I think that there's more there to, that, that students learn, like coping skills, like study skills. And I think that if you don't teach those skills early on, then something's going to come up where you're not going to be able to handle bigger situations when you're in tougher spots. Right. Now, now Kareem, remember, I, I want to say it was season one, we talked to my brother. We went out mm-hmm. to Michigan. And he said similar things. He didn't know how to fail. He didn't learn how to fail. Like it, high school was easy. He didn't have to study. And he transitioned and you know, UPenn and he was like, he got his first F. Like he didn't know how to study. He didn't know how to, and this, I mean, he's, he was like number seven in his class. So even at the top tier class, you still not getting these basic skills on how to study and how to manage your time and things of that nature. Um, I don't know if you remember that particular podcast. from I, I, I do. And I think that for us, we, we built a society where it's though that everyone is too big to fail. So when you're talking about those that are really athletic inclined, I can't allow my program to fall apart because I need you. Hmm. So rather you're a really high talented um, athlete, rather you in the middle, if you sit the bench, I really don't care if you fail or not. You know what? I'll cut you in a second. But if you can fall, no, I need you because this program has to be successful because again when people look at the school they don't really grade the school based on how well we are doing actually in the classroom we base the school how well we do athletically and if your school is a really high athletic successful type of school then your school is the best never mind the fact that you have students that are coming out that probably can't read matter of fact they probably don't have to take the test they don't have different like study skills but Again, when we're looking at schools and how we're grading schools, we're grading schools based off athletics and not based off curriculum. Interesting. I think I think that um more of the problem that I faced and a lot of kids faced was when I got there, they, they explained to us that it's normal for freshmen to go through adversity in terms of um homesickness, mm-hmm. academic mm-hmm. struggles, and, and they had help for you to do that counseling and and all of that kind of stuff but coming from the inner mm-hmm. city you're taught at a age not to tell your business to no, nobody and not to do that so the help and that's what i explain to kids when i go talk to them about alcohol before you self-medicate because that's what i was doing mm-hmm. i was self-medicating mm-hmm. go get the help and that's what the, the the where the where I think the the plug needs to be plugged in at is that our kids are out there 
and and even adults. I know a lot of adults that I know for a fact need help, but mm -hmm. alcohol is so socially accepted, and it's a badge of honor in our in our in our community. In terms of every time we we you every time you 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 picture success, you picture somebody popping bottles. You picture somebody in the club with women around them. It's it's so much a part. The the hardest thing for me to do, especially the first time when I went, picture fun without alcohol. I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't picture having a fun life without being able to drink. Until I had to be brought all the way to my bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's why when people say, do you have to be brought to your bottom for you to get help? I had to be brought all the way to my bottom where there's nowhere else I could go but to God for me to mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. that um the uh i could have a successful and fun life without picking up alcohol and 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 that's on the adult side on the kid side where the, the kids are not trained enough because and, and i'm not tooting my own horn it's not not enough people like me that's not afraid to go back into into their community and to admit that they have shortcomings most mm -hmm. like once i got out of rehab i still have my company i still have everything Thing going on i could have just went and went on with my life and nobody would have knew where i was at nobody would have knew what happened nobody would have knew nothing but i had to make sense of the whole situation if i would if i didn't do what i'm doing i would have been sitting in the house for the rest of my life wondering why, why did god allow me to go through all of this and then mm -hmm. i would and then i would eventually probably picked up a drink again because i would have been feeling sorry for myself and doing all that stuff i had to channel this energy into something that was going to help other people mm -hmm. and that's why i started hitting the schools and hitting the aau teams and they practices and all of that going to camps and telling the kids my story mm -hmm. i think part of the key for young people is teaching them what we need to do is teach them how to ask for help right and exactly. even from a basic fundamental in the classroom, they don't know the answer. They're not raising their hand. They need the help. They don't know how to ask for help. Um, part of it exactly. is, you know, you don't want to admit that you're wrong. But um, I think we need to start changing the narrative for our young people and, and not being uh, having them not be afraid to ask for help. Um, even get mm -hmm. into a stage where you might even know the answer, but your friend next to you might know that not know the answer. And you're asking for them. I mean, I think it just needs. To, it, we need to get to a space where we need to get these young people early on. Uh, the ability to ask for help because when life hits you later, you're mm -hmm. a little bit more easy to go ask for help and seek that information out, and your, your pride won't necessarily get into the wet. Um, it's definitely something I think we need to teach our young people for sure. But also, Misa, I would think that as as parents, that's something that you should ingrain in them early is asking for help and not feeling as though that you have to take the entire world and put that on your back and carry it. Because a lot of times, if that's something that is brought up in the home then it becomes a lot easier when they need to step outside the home in different environments to be able to ask for help. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing to not know stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a bad mm -hmm. thing when you think that you know it all and you know so much that you don't need to ask anybody. So mm -hmm. now what happens, you go to Home Depot and you walk around for three hours because you can't find a certain tool and you don't want to ask nobody. <laughs> right, right. I think, I mean, even the family, uh, we have to have different conversations when it comes to family structure because um, like mike said you know our community is, is infamous on you don't put your business out in the street uh type mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to put it out in the street in order to get the help that you you need um you know and 
And part of that, let me, let me chime back in. And, and part of that is because we came up in an era where though that we believe that social services are going to come into play. And now social services is going to intervene and start making um, decisions about your parenting skills. So mm -hmm. if, if by chance, you know, you go to school and you're young, you say, you know what, um, you know, we didn't have no food last night, I didn't eat. First thing an educator is going to do is going to pick up the phone and they're probably going to call a division. And the division is going mm -hmm. to And now the division is going to start making decisions based on what they see in the home. Based 30 minutes, I can already tell you what your, your, your lifestyle is like. But they might not even know that, okay, I got laid off two weeks ago. Or just right. maybe the food, the food wasn't no good, so I couldn't feed my family. They have no idea what could be happening in your family, but they're making decisions. And this is why parents say, don't you go to school and tell them people nothing. This is how we need to know because we can actually help. But they like, no. don't you tell them nothing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That is crazy. I do want to push gears a little bit because um, you mentioned your business. Mm -hmm. um, explain a little bit about what you do. Um, you know, we're sports junkies here, and we had a little uh, conversation off air a little bit about um, you know me coaching, and you know we got some connections there. So what is yeah? What um, do you do? Um, I started. I do basketball spotlight. It's like the platform for middle school basketball players. Um, we do tournaments, camps, showcases, um, and other type of events. And it was it was created in about 2004 to give middle school kids a platform for them to get attention. Now it was when I I, I used to work for this company called Metros, and we did high school and a little bit of middle school stuff. But nobody was actually concentrating strictly on middle school players and giving them their platform to 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 uh, get attention to get noticed by high schools to get noticed by colleges. To get noticed by like now it took off and it had it has created a following and it created a movement for middle school basketball now the stuff that i do is duplicated all around the country in different places because of that and it is we have some of the top kids in the country come through my uh tournaments and camps and stuff like most of the kids that's in the nba from i'm gonna say from boston down to northern virginia came through basketball spotlight at one time or another so now other places are starting to catch on to to like middle school basketball and stuff like that but it was something that we started you i stepped out on a limb because it was something nobody was doing and i had friends that laughed at me and was like nobody's gonna pay attention to no little kids but me with my business degree i understood that um understood that the supply and demand part of it you find your product that nobody's doing and that everybody is going to need and they and they're going to continue to need it you know what I'm saying? Because there's always going to be kids that want to play basketball. There's always going to be parents that want their kids to get attention. So why not do that? And, mm -hmm. and it just mm -hmm. took off and, and turned into uh, something that, that I do for a living. Actually, and we talk about all the time on our last couple of podcasts, using this time of quarantine wisely. And so on the back end of it and looking for your, your lane and doing exactly what you basically said, now it's time for you to, to really sit down and, and do your assessment and try to find those pockets of, you know, on the back end, if you're a bit, you want to be a business owner um, and try and find a part mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. going to want to replicate. My advice right now, you go into to the service in industry right now, you'd be a barber, a hair, a hairstylist, mm -hmm. makeup artist, mm -hmm. yeah. and then you get your stuff <laughs> setting. That, right for the back end of this. Um, and now is the time to start mm -hmm. for that and, and looking for those pockets and using this time wisely to, um, you know, make your moves for it. Don't don't miss this opportunity. 
I mean, it's a, it, I think there's a reason why this happened for us to slow down and, and to really think and, and you know assess our life and cut out Indeed. some things don't need anymore and, and make life a little bit more simple. Um, but there is opportunity for you on the back end of this thing to do it. Absolutely. Um, do you think in terms of AAU basketball, and I wrestled with this, I've coached high school uh, for a while too, and it's getting to the point or before this coronavirus hit, but getting to the point where you don't actually have to play high school sports in some, some sports. You can do the AAU circuit, you can do those things in colleges will, will notice it. Do you think that it eventually get to a point where um, you're elite players um, that, you know, you don't even have to play high school sports anymore? Or do you think high school sports are still going to be an important part of, of, of the development of these athletes? It's always going to come into play because right now they're really trying to phase AAU out. If, if the, if the, uh, and, and this, and this my gut feeling, if the sneaker companies weren't involved in and in, in the AU part of it, see, the problem is now the NCAA really wants to get AU portion out of it. But the NCAA got deals with the sneaker companies just like the, the AU teams got deals with the sneaker companies. So that's the only thing that's keeping the sneaker, the, the AU part really in it. They, they, because what happened is, is it has gotten out of control in terms of um, before back in the day when we were young, the high school coach controlled most of the situation in terms of when kids were getting recruited, how they dealt with them, and things of that nature. And I don't know if you guys saw the scheme, the uh, the thing that came on HBO, the AAU people have taken over that portion of it, and now they got handlers and people that's with the kids that want this and want that and this and that. So it created a whole another animal. Now, mm -hmm. I don't think that never let college high school coaches get away with it because also, too, a lot of the I had a lot of coaches on my interviews that I do with my live. And they talk more about looking at a kid's character in terms of letting the kid come to their college to play now. The days of the Allen Iversons and those kind of people being in the NBA, them days are gone. Mm -hmm. I had I had it was three kids, um, two kids, Lewis King and Nazi Muhammad, Nazi Reed. Both of them uh, went to the NBA this past year. They played in my tournaments in seven, six, six, seven, eighth grade. I had general managers calling me, asking me about what they was doing in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, their character and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they trace mm -hmm. all the way back now. They not mm -hmm. they not putting money into kids that's 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 that had the kind of uh, uh like Iris and Marbury and they not doing that no more. Mm -hmm. If you if, if they don't if they feel like you might be a risk, they cutting you straight out. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Kareem, remember not, we talked to Coach Poles in our previous podcast, and he basically explained that that's how we recruit at Rowan is that you know we we basically recruit character and it's cultural yeah um and not that you know we can teach you how to shoot and dribble and all those things you know you have to have some talent obviously but we we have to be with you for four years at the very least i mean you know at that level and i have to like you you have to be a good person you know what i'm saying i have to like you, mm -hmm. you know all that stuff comes in, in, into play um when i go recruit i don't look at the basketball count i sit where the parents sit i listen to that conversation i look and see how you act when you I'm out the game. Those are the tangibles that you know I look at in terms of recruiting. So, um, you know, every once in a while you're going to have that gem that you know the, the kid is really really talented. But how long it you might be 
And Allen Iverson player, but if you were in trouble the first semester, you're not playing for me anyway. <laughs> anyway, like this, put yourself in the head coach's shoes. You making, let's say, five hundred thousand to a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. You're not bringing no kid in there that's gonna get locked up. That's gonna get you fired. Like you, like yo, yo. yo. And I'm glad you brought it up. I want to, I want to touch on Coach Patino. I don't know how Coach Patino went home and told his wife, "Listen, I just got fired." And we lost twenty million dollars. I don't know how you had that conversation yeah. with your wife. He said he hit that Jay Z line. Another twenty mil ain't, ain't gonna hurt me. Unlike Hammer, twenty mil can't hurt me. He good. Man, you know what I'm saying? Coach Patino yeah, is a really good coach. I mean, he he helped a lot of kids throughout his career. Now he can't even get a job. I think he's at no. He got. He's at a, no, he he's a, a small D one. Is he at a small D one now? A really small D one. Yeah, but they're gonna let it. See, this is how I go. It's certain coaches, they're going to let come back. Okay. You know what I mean? Now, let's say like Nolan Richardson. Mm -hmm. he, said, he makes one statement to the press. Now, he got a coach in Cancun. You know what mm. I'm saying? He can't never get a job in. But mm. people like Patino could do stuff and do this. Mm -hmm. and they keep giving them chances. You know what I'm saying? But that's mm -hmm. the way that the game goes. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, But it's just, it's just real... It's just a, a real ill situation when it comes to that kind of stuff. But that's the game that we in, man. Absolutely. And and going back to like AAU and, and like Coach said, it's um it's coming to the point where though that character is going to be one of the number one things. Actually, character is going to be seen more than talent. So when you're looking at a kid in the basketball court and, and he's flipping out, he's not listening to the coach, he's yelling at the officials and he's yelling at the players. Nobody wants that type of cancer in their locker room. And they really don't want it on the campus because they know that, man, if you can't keep your composure in the basketball court, how are you going to do it in the classroom? How are you going to do it when no one is looking? Or when we go, you know, and we have a game and we go across the country and we're in a national tournament and you just go out and do what, I don't know, what Alonzo Ball's brother did and go to the store and steal some sunglasses. Like, that made no sense to me at all. Your, your brother's a millionaire. Yeah, but steal sunglasses. Right. Also, too, also, too, um, when I had UConn um, assistant coach on, um, he really emphasized that how they look at your social media. Mm -hmm. And not only you, your parents. Mm -hmm. What they posting, what they talking about, all of that stuff. Like, mm -hmm. And I asked him straight up, did, did y'all ever really, is that rumor or fact that y'all, did you ever really take scholarship offers from kids upon seeing something? And he said 100%. Mm -hmm. And that goes to also for um, employment. Now, that's the first thing when I'm hiring somebody. The first thing I do is I'm going to get social media. It's there. I'm going to look at it. And I remember this one lady, this was a couple years ago. Her resume was stellar. Everything was 100%. I look on her Facebook and there's inappropriate pictures on that. I didn't even bring you in for, for an interview because it's about the, the mm -hmm. climate fit. I can teach you how to teach. That's the easy part. But I can't teach you how to fit in the culture and climate that I need. Mm -hmm. um, so that not only goes for athletes, that goes for you know any business, anyone that's looking for uh, um, employment. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things you probably need to do right now if you're looking for employment is clean up your social media. Indeed, <laughs> I'm and, and I tell, I had this debate with my with, with people and friends a lot because I be on there a lot for my basketball company and stuff. And then I I now me as a human being in the Natural eye, you see things that you want to engage in. You see <laughs> things that you want to talk about. But I, but once I, I created basketball spotlight, I lost that right. I can't do that. 
Mm-hmm. You get what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, I can't mm-hmm. talk about certain subjects. I can't comment on certain things. I can't make posts about certain things. I lost that right. Now, mm-hmm. now, if I want to indulge in that, I better be willing to give up my right for basketball spotlight because mm-hmm. I want to be like everybody else. Mm-hmm. You give up that right once you take that responsibility of dealing, having a situation where you're dealing with kids. Mm-hmm. You can't I- talk about certain sex and doing this and i can't talk about that kind of stuff you gotta understand that these companies they have a brand and when they hire you you are part of that brand you have to fit in with uh-huh. that, that brand even if you like the situation like yourself you're yourself employed your company has a brand now you are branded exactly. so you have to maneuver a little bit different than everybody else crazy so we're going to transition over jamie you've been quiet down there do you have your segment Ready? I do. I do. All right. We're transitioning over. Uh, Jamie's our two-foot assassin. She, uh, we're going to do all things little. She's going to talk about some one thing that she hates that's little. Um, if she mm-hmm. sticks with the thing, she's going to be talking about Kareem subliminally. So we're going to just uh, see what happens here. So, Jamie, what you got? Um. So we're going to change gears completely. I really, I recently moved. And in my, my old house, I had the, the nicest bathtub. It was huge. There were jets. I really hate small bathtubs because when I get in the tub, I can, like, stretch out. There's, like, room for me usually. And now there's not all that room that I need to be able to do what I want to do. How much room do you need? You're two feet tall. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. I like bubbles and, like, wine. And, like, I just need space. And there used to be so much space, and I'm not really digging the small tub. Now. I can see. I get it, though, because I don't like it. My feet have to stick out and all this stuff, and then my legs cold. You need a big tub. I get all that, but you're small. I know. I know. So I can still I sit, but it's not like I like to be able to move around in there. Like, like a you want to be like, you want to be like Tony, Tony Montana sitting there watching television, watching the bubble bath, smoking a cigar. That's what, that's what you want? <laughs> fly, pelican, fly. <laughs> that's uh, wrong with you. So, my I'm gonna ask you, what's one thing that you can't stand that's little? Um, oh, that's it. I ain't nobody never asked me a question like that. <laughs> one thing I can't stand that's little. Yeah, I'm small minded people because we've already talked about small minded people. What? Yeah, that's true. Uh, um, I think once I went through what I went through and then having uh, been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, having well, my patience is short. Mm. Like before I, I would I would be able to, to, to handle a lot of things like without really responding to other things or that. But once you go through like, like like traumatic event and stuff like that. It's like my patience is short. So I don't really have the patience to deal with things like I do. Now I'm getting better at it with meditation and, and things of that nature. I'm getting better at it and being able, and especially not having my body consumed with like alcohol and stuff like that. That's helping me too, but my having a short, having short patience. Now the last we have on the show is called um, "Are You Petty?" And, uh, and our mutual friend said that you are extremely petty, so I have to ask you a question. Uh, he said, "I quote unquote, you probably are the most petty person that he knows." So, <laughs> are you petty? Sometimes, 
Depends on depends on not as much as I used to be. I definitely used to be uh definitely used to be petty. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like I had to get the last word in. I had to like, you know what I'm saying? I'm definitely gonna get you back. You know what I'm saying? Um man, well a story, me and him played on the same uh rec team in Trenton you man. And man, my best friend was on the team together too. So they was the dudes, they usually, they was the, the big man, man, who was the guards. They used to be talking a lot of junk. So we just froze them out for like two games. Just man, <laughs> him, I just passed the ball to him, he passed the ball to me, we shoot threes. Now you got three, you got three like six, six dudes, you know Tory and stuff. You got three like six, 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 seven dudes out low, super mad. But, we, but I knew that I was the one that handled the ball and he was the shooter, so we just passed it to each other. And, and 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 of course they was upset, but but they gonna do we we don't want they couldn't dribble the ball up. <laughs> yep, you got your Michael Jordan on because I was watching that episode last night and he was like, if, uh-huh. "Would you pass the ball to Kobe?" He was like, "I ain't passing the ball. I'm passing the ball." <laughs> <laughs> That's petty. Free, we got anything? Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious. All right, so you show up to the court and you got five, right? And you actually bring the basketball mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. If you lose first game, do you take your ball go home if your five don't play well? Um, you, the court, you got five, you got the ball. Do you take your ball with you if you lose? No, nah, I never I never was really like that. I was too much of a basketball junkie. So, so I, I wanted to stay. I had to stay. Yeah. So make sure, no, you, you got the ball, right? So now you're on the sideline while everybody else is running full court because your five lost. Uh-huh. So you stay there and let everybody else play with your ball while you just stay on the sideline and wait. Yeah, because I know I'm gonna get back on next. Now, follow-up question is who do you cut on your team? You showed up with five. Who you cut? Whoever was costing us. <laughs> they gotta go. It ain't personal. It ain't personal. I got you with the ball thing though, especially if I got the best ball that's out there and my team lose. I'm I'm gonna hold on. You ain't playing with my ball. I'm gonna sit on the sideline. I'll get the, 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 the dirty ball, and then when I play, I play with my ball. Because you know somebody always shows up, right? And they have that ball, and it looks like it's having a baby because like the the leather came off, and like and it always messes up when you try to dribble. I may hold yeah. up my ball too. Now you go ahead and rock with that. I'm gonna hold up my ball. <laughs> That's too funny. Well, we're gonna wrap this podcast up real quick. Jamie, any last words before we get up out of here? No, I just think if you have a problem, you know, the first thing that you need to do is accept that problem in order to move forward. Indeed. Indeed. Kareem, any last words before we get out of here? Um, I just really, really think um coach for sharing his story, man. It was a really powerful story. And I think that um you know, through the trials and tribulations of everybody's life, they really should be willing to share that experience because, you know, sometimes you go through stuff, it's not so much as for you, but it's also for other people to learn from and be able to overcome. Um, and, and again, Coach, just, just stay strong, you know, continue to, to do the meditation, you know, and, you know, continue to help out those young people, man, because they need you. We need you in the community so that, um, you know, we have more strong brothers like yourself as well to, to reteach our youth how to become stronger men. Mm-hmm. Mike, any last words for me before we get out of here? I want to thank you guys because um, the this what helps me stay sober and helps me keep going, being able to tell my story and help other people. That's what keeps me going. So I, I need 
um, avenues and you know with, with stuff going on right now we can't really get out to meetings and stuff like that so we do the zoom thing but being able to go out and, and tell my story and help other people that helps me stay sober awesome. so I, I thank you guys for that awesome anyway people can get in contact with you whether it be basketball or any speaking things once this thing well, is uh, they can hit me at uh b-ball spotlight hotmail basketball spotlight at hotmail for my email they, we on Instagram. Our Instagram is popping. B-Ball Spotlight. Twitter, B-Ball Spotlight. And on Facebook, Mike Mellon. Awesome. Definitely going to put those links up for you. Um, just to close out, um, at the end of the day, if you are struggling or know somebody that's struggling with any kind of addiction or just need to learn how to ask for help, at the end of the day, um, do not be afraid to ask for help with whatever situation that you may be in. It could be positive. It could be negative. But we need to start. Um, teaching our young people how to ask for help, and you need to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. We need to have those discussions as families um, as well. Um, do not be afraid. I mean, you don't know everything, and there's people and there's resources out there. Information is powerful, but you need to go get it. So um, thanks again, Mike, for being on your story. was definitely touching, and you know, our audience definitely is going to um, get something out of it. And, uh, you know, we wish you well and everything. Um, to everybody that's out there right now, again, you know, do your self-assessment, get your plan together. Um, they're starting to open up some things here and there, but do not miss this opportunity uh, of a lifetime on the back end of it. You know, look at it as negative, but there's a lot of opportunity that's, that's going to come um, your way if, if you're in position for it. So until next time, stay empowered.